The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly podcast brought to you by Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, coming to you from Connecticut in the USA, having taken another near-empty flight across the Atlantic from Zurich. This week, I asked Peter Thal Larson, our EMEA editor, to break down the 750 billion euros recovery and resilience facility agreed to by European Union leaders after a marathon session earlier this week. The agreement was obviously a big political test for the EU, especially given its embrace of a form of collective borrowing, which was embedded in the deal. This will have wide-ranging ramifications on the single currency, including on the question of whether it might even challenge the domination of the U.S. dollar one day. The deal may also accelerate greater unification of capital markets and banking in Europe, which could lead to more consolidation, something Santander's chair Anna Botin suggested earlier this week as well. Finally, I hand the mic over to Robin Mack in Hong Kong to chat with Pete Sweeney about Chinese booze maker Kui Chow Mao Tai. If you don't know Mao Tai, you may want a shot of Baiju before listening, but the company now sports a market value greater than that of Diageo, Pernod Ricard, Remy Cointreau, Constellation Brands, Davide Campari, and Brown Foreman combined. So bottoms up. So, Peter, kind of big news came out of Europe where you had this sort of marathon meeting of leaders, EU leaders. They came up with um, a way to administer this recovery and resilience facility, which which has got like 750 billion euros of stimulus for recovery of from uh, the pandemic. Can you explain why this matter? Why why this was so significant first for, from the perspective of Europe, actually, as a as a concept? Well, I think that's that's the right way to look at it. It's really, it's symbolically extremely important because for years and years and years, for decades, in fact, um, people have talked about the fact that the European Union, in order to become a genuine union rather than just a collection of uh, of states, uh, we're going to have to find some way to, tra- to, to to make economic transfers, to transfer funds from, from, from the rich countries to poor countries. And that's always been resisted. Uh, particularly by Germany. And really what's happened is that this pandemic has galvanized uh, uh, Germany and and France particularly to sort of join forces and to uh, propose this fund. And, and, um, you know, they came up with this idea and took a bit of haggling, took several nights of of, of round-the-clock negotiating in Brussels and and a bit of fighting and tension with, with some of the smaller countries. But they did manage to get it through. And so the the big picture thing is that at the end of the day is that through, you know, the European Union is going to borrow 750 billion euros. And the important part is that of that, 390 billion will be money that will be distributed to countries that need it most in the form of grants. So it doesn't need to be repaid. So the debt sits with the EU collectively rather than with those countries. And that's a that's a huge breakthrough for the European I mean, that, yeah, that, that sort of collective borrowing, um, which, of course, Germany, the Netherlands, other folks um, have have resisted for some time. I mean, it's akin to what the United States does every day, whether it's, you know, borrowing money and federal federal showering it from the federal level through Alabama, Mississippi, wherever. I mean, it sort of it sort of does take you one step closer to that idea that many people have espoused of the United States of Europe. It does, but I mean, you're still a long way from that because, I mean, bear in mind that the federal government distributes money, but it also raises money in the form of taxes. Um, uh, and then obviously, obviously, it has the ability to borrow. Um, the European Union will not 
there's some discussion at the edges about little ideas of things that they could do that might raise some money directly for the European Union. Um, but actually what happens at the moment is that the money comes from the member states and is then contributed upwards to a budget. Um, and so this and this will continue. So, so the, 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 the repayment or the, the payment servicing of the interest on the loan uh, and the eventual repayment is supposed to happen from European Union budget, which will come from the member states. But the key thing really is that, is that this is a transfer. So, so Germany and, and the Netherlands and some of the so Austria and some of the wealthier countries will put in more than they get out. And that's kind of the key. Right, change. right. Now, but what, what does this do for the euro? I mean, we Neil Unmack, one of our colleagues, wrote a piece that sort of makes the case that this does strengthen the argument for the European for the European single currency as a sort of reserve currency. Right now, it's it's quite uh, it's it's its weight in the world is quite small relative to the size of the European Union economy, and certainly relative to the United States. Is this is this get us closer to that moment where the dollar is no longer the the king of the reserve currency? Well, I think we're probably still quite a long way from dethroning the dollar, but um, uh, but no, it is definitely a step in in the creation of the euro, as particularly as a, a, a kind of a haven currency for people with assets that, that people might want to own that they consider to be almost risk free, um, and that's always been the sort of the objection with the EU that it doesn't have a safe asset, and so they will sell these bonds, and initially it will be 750 billion, which is not enormous. Um, but that does give people something that they can that they can invest in, which is backed by the uh, by by the by the entirety of the European Union. Now, I think a lot of this optimism and there's been some movement in the in the in the financial markets to to support the euro as a result of this. But a lot of this optimism is based on the question really of whether you think this is the beginning of something that will then grow and 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 expand, or whether you think it's a one-off response to a once in a hundred years crisis and will never be repeated. And actually, when you look at the positions of the different leaders uh, uh, as they came out of those negotiations the other day, um, you know, on the one hand, the French are saying, this is it, this is the template we've now shown that Europe can, can support itself. And, and on the other extreme, uh, you know, the Dutch Prime Minister, uh, uh, Mark Rutte, was saying, no, 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 this is absolutely a one-off, we're never going to do this again. So. To a certain extent, your belief in, in the euro as a, as a sort of safe haven depends to a certain extent on whether you think this is something that will, that will be done again for, or whether they're going to leave it at that. Well, once done, it's hard to undo. So it's that whole slippery slope argument. But I'm, you know, there are safeguards in here so that so that it doesn't become sort of this isn't the new normal, right? This is this is a, an ex, a response to an exceptional circumstance. Well, let me ask you about like. Anna Botin, the chair chair of Santander, came out and said something to one of our colleagues at Reuters this week that the deal, in a sense, makes it more likely or easier to imagine larger scale cross-border European M&A among banks. Uh, but of course, not Santander. We're not going to be the ones to do it, but whatever, which she says a lot. But I mean, how do you see this? You know, how could one read through this to the sort of, well, capital markets or M&A or banking? Well, I mean, I think, um, I mean, the short answer is that I don't really see how this deal makes cross-border consolidation in European banking any more likely than it was before. I mean, the big, there are two really big obstacles to, to, to creation of Eurozone-wide banks. And one is that um, when you think about the, the, uh, the, the, um, the support facility that um, the banks have, the, the, the deposit insurance that they have 
is still all national. There is no Eurozone-wide deposit insurance. And the reason there isn't Eurozone-wide deposit insurance is because countries like Germany have resisted it because they say this is a backdoor way to make German taxpayers responsible for losses in Italian banks. Um, so I, I guess maybe this, this breakthrough could lead to some kind of further breakthroughs on banking unions. It's certainly possible, but we're not there yet. But the other more prosaic reason that when we haven't had big cross-border mergers in EU banks yet is because there are no cost savings. Um, you know, they tend to be national operations. And the way you save costs in bank mergers is when you, you merge two banks that have overlapping operations and then you close branches and you take out costs. And that's not really the way that the European banking industry looks at the moment. So, I mean, you could, again, I think it's one of those things where you could say that maybe this is a step in that direction and maybe it will make it more likely that, that bankers think about these kind of things. It's certainly true that the era, you know, the fact that we have even lower interest rates for even longer now is putting pressure on them um, to uh, to think of things that they weren't thinking of before. Um, but I don't think this deal in itself is is the, the the real game changer in that respect. Right. It's not banking union. It's not. It does not get there. But I guess the idea of the fungibility of the euro or borrowing, I guess, sort of gets you a little bit closer conceptually to something. Now, it's also interesting. This is a stim. It's sort of a stimulus fund. I mean. Which is you compare that to what's happening in the U.S. Congress, for instance, they're still trying to figure out how to deal with the here and now, the issue of um, people who are out of work or who aren't. I mean, it does seem like this is this is a little bit more longer term. I mean, qualitatively, what are you actually? What does the bill? Where will this money go? And is do you do you think it's it is more about whether it's raising productivity rates or doing things like infrastructure? Is that is that what we're going to see as a result of this, or is it just going to be stopgap stuff for dealing with the problem? The pandemic. Um, there's, certainly a, there's certainly a lot of language in the announcement about sort of um, supporting, you know, the recovery, but also um, making investments in things that, that are good for the long term, you know, digitization, uh, green investments and so forth. I think we have to wait and see quite how that plays out. Um, but uh, I mean, the, the big thing really is that is the EU, the EU basically has learned its lesson from the crisis of 2012-2013. Um, when it basically tried to solve the problems of Eurozone countries, most notably Greece, by basically lending them more money. Um, and, uh, and, and they've realized that that, doesn't, that isn't really going to help. And the fact that you now have a situation where every country in the EU, like every developed country around the world, is ramping up borrowing to, to, to cope with the coronavirus, getting them to then borrow even more uh, isn't going to solve that problem. So, so there is... There is essentially a recognition that, that some, at some point governments actually have to spend money and the people who need to borrow the money need to be the people who can afford to do that. Well, Peter, thank you for the primer on the, uh, on the big Euro week. Um, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks very much. Hello, everyone. I'm Robin Mack, and I'm speaking with Pete Sweeney here in Hong Kong about Chinese booze and more specifically, the firewater known as Baijiu. Recently, state media has accused a top liquor brand, Kuecho Maotai, of benefiting from bribery and corruption, wiping $25 billion off the company's market cap. Pete, tell us a bit about what's happening and why this company seems to be under the spotlight from state media. Hey, Robin. Yeah, there's a lot of answers to that question, but. One of the problems, of course, is that Maotai is sort of a victim of its own success. Back in 2012, of course, they were a very hard luck story. 
President Xi Jinping had started this massive anti-corruption campaign. Uh, Mao Tai and a lot of other luxury brands fell victim to that, saw sales tank. Once that wound down in around 16, 2016 or so, however, the stock started going on this amazing tear. I think in 2017, it overtook Diageo by market value. And now it's worth $300 billion. Wow. Uh, it's the most valuable company listed in mainland China. It's more valuable than pretty much all the major international liquor brands put together. It's also more valuable than the ICBC, which is the world's largest state bank by assets and kind of a Chinese national champion. So that's a little bit odd, playing a little oddly in Beijing, given that this brand has been associated with corruption, with people you know, giving each other these, I mean, these bottles are like $500 a pop, right? I mean, it's really, really expensive, fancy stuff. It's 53% alcohol. And it's just been seen as this kind of lubricator of bribery, of, of official waste, you know, embezzlement, blah, blah, blah. It's just the bottle of Mao Tai is there. Fairly or not, okay? But so state media has, has kind of picked on them before. Uh, I think a couple of years ago, Xinhua, the state news service, um, started getting anxious about the share rally and said shares are rallying too fast. And that took a little bit of a hit out of them. Um, now we've got this unit of people's daily railing at them and taking a bite out of the share price down like 8%. But still, like this is an incredibly successful company. It's still twice as expensive as Diageo is on a uh, price to earnings basis. Um, it's also twice as profitable. Its margins are, are crazy high. Yeah, so um, let, let me ask you, Pete, I mean, just given, you know, like with the pandemic and the lockdowns, like, you know, and, and I'm sure people are drinking more at home as in, you know, everywhere in the world. I mean, is there any chance that this valuation is justified? I mean, like you said, it seems quite profitable and growth is seems to be doing quite well. Right. Well, that's the $300 billion question, I'd say. There are some reasons to question whether Mao Tai can stay at this elevated level. For one thing, you know, there's a general Chinese stock market rally, which regulators are a bit worried about because leverage, you know, margin finance has been rising sharply. There's a lot of liquidity in the system. So that makes Beijing a little bit nervous, given the crash in 2015 was driven by the same factors. And there's a the fact that Chinese liquor makers have rallied even stronger than the rest of the market. The CSI liquor index, I think, is up 30 percent this year, maybe more. Yeah, 36 percent. Sorry. I mean, that's twice as much as the rest of the market. Um, there's all these these smaller liquor makers that are up like 100 percent this year that are like going even better than Maotai. So if regulators crack down on the market like these guys could get hit harder. Then there's Maotai's business as such. Can it keep up this crazy growth? Maybe not. And the margins look vulnerable. It did really well in the last quarter, you know, the first quarter of the year when everybody was locked up and apparently drank a bunch of Maotai. Profit came up like 17%, I think, which is really not shabby. But part of the reason the profits are high and the, and the, the margins are still high is because they spent nothing on advertising or marketing because they couldn't. Everybody's locked up, so they just enjoyed the sales. That's not sustainable. Growth is forecast to slow from like 30% average compound growth to, to maybe something closer to 10, um, so that'll slow down. And then the big thing is that there may be another corruption campaign in the pipeline. Um, Xi Jinping is planning a rectification campaign, as they call it, to start in 2021. Um, that's going to see a renewed round of investigations into officials for doing bad things, for not being supportive, for being two-faced, as they say, and, and generally not cooperative. Corrupt embezzlers are going to be under the microscope again. That could also hit Maotai sales or, or its stock price. Okay. And I guess in the past, you know, I think it's a very distinctly Chinese thing with how much this top end alcohol is so tied to like bribery and corruption. So with this 
anti-corruption crackdown coming, is that going to affect other luxury brands as well or just Mao Thai? Um, well, this is all hypothetical for one thing, whether it will, how hard it will hit Mao Thai. I mean, we should point out first before we, we predict a certain doom that a lot of its consumption has been from private buyers. It doesn't seem that the entirety of its sales are, are to officials related to consumption. That's just kind of what the, the image it has. You know, its ex-chairman was arrested last year. That wasn't a good look. But, you know, are the bulk of people buying Mao Thai actually corrupt officials? I don't know. That's just what state media insinuates. Um, but it's a great question as to other luxury brands took a big hit during the corruption campaign. Um, you know, officials didn't want to be seen buying bling, buying fancy cars. There was this general slowdown. If it hits again, like everybody could slow down, which is going to be bad news, you know, for a lot of Western brands um, that have been coasting on this resilient luxury market in China for handbags, for cars, for whatever you name it, that is actually outperformed. So that's something for everybody to worry about and not just Mao Thai. Okay, thanks, Pete. It looks like Mao Thai shareholders are uh, maybe in for a hangover. <laughs> That's our show for this week. Thanks to my guests and hats off to our producer, Freddie Joyner, as always in New York. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your podcast fixes. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com, of course, and don't forget to tune in next week for another edition. Stay healthy.